Today, we talk about non-solutions to environmental change, coal-burning cars, and how we have a greener earth today than 20 years ago. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. In the last episode and in this episode and pretty much every other episode that we do here on the show, the purpose is, the goal is to get you and to get I to think, because guess what? As I put these episodes together, it actually requires me to think. Go figure. You got to think. Well, today we are going to be talking about climate change, global warming, electric cars, which are really coal burning cars depending on where you live in the world, but most plants, most nations are powered by coal-burning plants. So if you have an electric car, you, my friend, have a coal-burning car, which, even though you probably don't think it is, it's actually a really good thing. But the problem is, when we look at climate change, and now I'm not a climate change denier, but I am Uh, a person that looks at what we are doing about climate change. And I'm a little skeptical. I don't think that the the course that we are taking is actually the best course. And the reason that I say that is because of economics. It's because of the the cost-benefit ratio of some of the activities that we are putting our money into. For instance... When you think about recycling, recycling, it's a really great thing. We all love, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. We all learned it as a kid and we all preach it still to our kids. But the issue is with recycling. And again, this depends on where you live. It depends on the facilities that are available in your area. But when you recycle something, it goes to the recycle plant, the plant normally doesn't have the capacity or it doesn't have the equipment to actually recycle what you gave them. So what do they do with that recycled material? Well, they put it on a ship and they send it to Southeast Asia or China. And instead of recycling it, they burn it, which then sends toxins up into the atmosphere. So what might be a better solution? Well, put it in a landfill where it belongs rather than trying to recycle it because it's actually not helping our environment, not because recycling is a bad thing, but because most of the things that are getting recycled aren't ending up in recycling plants. They're ending up on a ship. They're ending up in the ocean and they're ending up in Southeast Asia being burned and releasing all of those plastic toxins back into the atmosphere, the atmosphere that we so care about because you and I breathe the atmosphere. But here's something else. Here's something else that recently happened in California. Again, the great, the great state of California. Uh, Governor Newsom, he decided last week that, again, it sounds really great on paper, but we're going to break down the math to see if it is great. He decided to sign an executive order last week outlawing and banning the future sales of gasoline-powered cars and trucks, which would take place in 2035. So essentially, 
you are not allowed to sell any more new gas burning vehicles. Why did he say that? Well, he said this is the most important step that our state can take to fight climate change. Our cars shouldn't make wildfires worse. Now, here we are, 2020. You might remember that at the beginning of this year, we started off with some massive fires across Australia. Just the entire continent of Australia was going up in flames. It was burning. Now, so many of us said, oh my goodness, see, it's evidence. Climate change, climate change, climate change. The world is burning. It's on fire. It's crying out because of climate change. Well, not exactly. See, when you have large areas of land everywhere in the world, you have what are called controlled burns. In order to deal with the underbrush, that builds up year over year. Each year, ranchers control burn their, their prairies, their land, so that all that underbrush gets eaten up. The forest is maintained. The forestry, the greenery is maintained. And it prevents massive fires from breaking out. And th that fire in Australia, it killed so many animals. It killed people. It destroyed houses. But... A few years ago, Australia said, you know what, we are going to stop allowing people to do controlled burns. We're going to stop ranchers from doing controlled burns because we want to protect the environment. We want to protect Mother Nature. And what happens? What happens is we see massive fires happening across the country and continent of Australia, destroying so much destroying forests, destroying animals, destroying species, destroying homes. Why? Because we tried to do something that we thought was good on, on the face value. We tried to do something that said, you know what? This is going to look really good. I'm going to feel really good about myself. It's going to be a really good PR moment for me to say, look, I'm doing something about the environment when really we're not making that big of an impact by these surface level activities instead of addressing deeper issues. Well, the same thing happened this year in California. In California this year, we had massive, massive fires, millions, hundreds of millions of acres burned, people died, hundreds and thousands of homes were burnt to the ground, people's lives destroyed. Why? Was it because we have too many gasoline burning cars on the roads? No, it's because one, again, as we will discuss today, California decided to stop controlled burns, which caused the underbrush to build up. Another thing that California did, it was they, de they took away money from the PG&E, which is the electric company, and they were not able to fix old power points and power lines. So they said, you know, we're not going to be replacing these old power lines because it's producing all this waste. Well, now they didn't replace old transistors, old transformers on power lines, and those power lines then caused massive fires. But instead, we think that if we can get more electric cars on the road, 
that we will make an impact in climate change rather than addressing the root issues, which are the controlled burning and actually maintaining the infrastructure that we have. Now, Bjorn Lombard is a economist out of Europe. We have talked about him before. We have talked about his economic analysis of the 2020 UN initiatives um, way back in episode 22, I believe. And we're going to be talking, uh, referring to some of his articles, recent articles again today. So Bjorn says, electric cars still cause emissions, right? We think, okay, I get an electric car. I'm not causing any gas emissions when I'm driving my car, but that's not true. Electric cars still cause emissions, especially from the production of their batteries, in these batteries, it's mostly cobalt, which is being mold, mined in, in the Congo. It's being the chemicals that are used to be able to extract this cobalt is enormous. They also, he goes on to write, cause emissions while running off electricity, unless this electricity is entirely zero emissions. Using the International Energy Agency latest estimate, the Emissions from gasoline and electric cars and adjusting to the lower carbon intensity in the California grid, gasoline-powered cars will, over its lifetime, emit 34.2 tons of carbon dioxide or its equivalent. An electric car with an 80-kilowatt battery using California electricity will emit 20 tons of over its lifetime. A switch will not eliminate transportation emissions, but will reduce them by less than half over the course of a decade. So this is, it's good. I like electric cars. I would love an electric car. It's going to be reducing emissions by less than half. But here's the problem. The analysis here is deeply flawed. So in America, they, the government, California, the U.S. government, they give out tax cuts and rebates to incentivize people to buy electric cars, which can cost the public up to $10,000 per electric car in California. And this includes the added benefits of access to high occupancy lanes, free parking, free electricity. And yet it cuts at most 20 tons of greenhouse gases over the vehicle's lifetime. So we're, we're cutting at most 20 tons of greenhouse gases, which it sounds like a lot, but it comes at the cost of $10,000 to incentivize people to buy these cars because right now the price point and the technology is not quite there to make it something that people will buy without a tax credit because the economics just don't line up. It's not worth their pocketbook to buy an electric car unless you're virtue signaling and status signaling, or maybe you just have the money and you want an electric car. I mean, heck, I do. Here's the thing. Bjorn writes, we can achieve a similar cut much cheaper on the world's regional carbon trade exchange. In the northern United States, U.S. exchange known as the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, for instance, you can pay power plants to cut emissions 
by 19.6 tons for less than $125. But we are paying $10,000 to achieve the same benefit via an electric car. So if we really, if you and I really wanted to make an impact, or if the, if the people leading our governments across the world really wanted to make an impact, they wouldn't be investing in tax rebates for individuals to buy electric cars, $10,000 to save 20 tons of carbon imprint footprint on the environment. Instead, what we would do, we would say, hey, we can pretty much do 100 times that by giving that same $10,000 to power plants to cut global emissions by helping them convert their existing power plants into clean burning power plants, which is something that we have the technology for. It's expensive, but we have the technology for. And instead of spending money on something we're getting a very, very small return on investment, we should be investing our money in places where it counts. So it's just a bad deal. A $10,000 tax credit is a bad deal if we are actually trying to help the environment. We can do 70 to 80 times better if we put that money towards reducing regional greenhouse gases from cutting global emissions via power plants. But here's where it gets more tricky, right? The whole reason that he is, Governor Newsom, is banning these cars, the sale of gasoline cars, is because his claim is that it will help tackle future wildfires in California. He's right that global warming creates a more favorable fire environment by increasing hot and dry conditions. But some experts estimate this plays a very minor role. The much more important factor, as we have already touched on, is how we manage the lands. So California used to burn much more before global warming. According to researchers from the University of California, Berkeley, the state typically saw between 4.4 and 11.9 million acres burn every year before 1800. This means 12% of the entire state burned every year. Back then, researchers concluded skies were more likely to be smoky during the summers and fall in California. But California put it laws in place where they're now only allowed to burn 1% of their land. And they have taken away finances to be able to have controlled burns across the state. So the real problem is not cars that are driving on roads that are polluting the environment. The real problem is we have stopped managing our land. We have stopped controlled burns. Why? Because of the perception that we have of them. And by doing that, we're actually causing more damage across the world not only in California, but we've also seen this in Australia. There is another article by Bjorn that I also came across this week where 
he writes, many politicians across the rich world frequently claim that climate change is an existential threat to human existence. However, this is contrary to the central findings of the UN Climate Panel. It estimates that by the year 2070, global warming will overall have a negative impact equivalent to the reduction of incomes between 0.2 and 2%. By then, the UN expects the average person will be 363% richer than they are today. The negative impact from climate change means that we will instead be 356% as rich as today. That's a problem, but it's not the end of the world. Now, Biden, if he is indeed elected president, also wants to restore the full electric vehicle tax credit. Although spending $7,500 to $10,000 for each electric car is one of the costliest ways to cut emissions. The International Energy Agency finds that an electric car over its lifetime, as we've talked about, only emits about 10 tons to 20 tons less than a similar gasoline car. And now we've already gone over how if you take that $10,000 and you put it towards making better power plants, you can have 70 to 100 times more impact. Here is the startling fact that even if all of the rich countries in the world cut all of their CO2 emissions tomorrow and remained shut down for the, for the next 100 years, for the next 80 years, the standard UN climate model shows that it would reduce temperatures by the year 2100 by just 0.8 degrees Fahrenheit. 0.8 degrees Fahrenheit. So that means if all the Western world shut down all of their emissions, everything, no more carbon emissions for the next 80 years, we would only see a temperature variation by 0.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Why? This is because three quarters of the expected emissions over the rest of the century comes from China India, Africa, and the rest of the non-rich world. They're, these nations, these regions of the world are not about to implement unaffordable trillion-dollar climate investments. Their goal, their first goal, is to get all their people out of poverty, which means access to much more reliable and cheaper energy, mostly from fossil fuels. So instead, the solution has to focus on dramatically increased investments in green energy R&D. If innovations could push the price of zero CO2 energy below the cost of fossil fuels, all the nations would switch overnight from fossil fuels to zero CO2 emissions fuel. Climate economists show that this is the most effective long-term climate policy. Now, before we had coal-burning plants, the way that people would light their houses was from whale oil. It was killing off the whales. It was, people are 
poaching whales. They're slaughtering these whales. The oil is dirty. It pollutes the atmosphere even worse. And we had a problem. People were trying to figure out how can we kill less whales. But what happened was, instead, we developed a new way, a better way to create light, to create electricity, to create power. And this caused the poaching of whales to nearly stop overnight. If we really care, if we really care about the environment, then we should put our money, we should put our dollars into a place that's actually going to have the most impact for our financial dollar so that so that we are getting the most return on investment. That would make the most sense. If we care, we want to get the most return on investment. But now what you won't hear shared on mainstream media, on legacy media across the world is that the earth is actually greening. And this is something that we should, and I think are, at least I am, very excited about. I'm excited to hear that the earth is actually greener today than it was 20 years ago. NASA recently shot some images and compared it with 20 years ago, and they can see that across China, across India, there is a far greater amount of greenery today than back in the mid 1990s. The same goes with many places in the world. When you look across uh, North America, when you look across the rainforest in South America, you look across the, the Congo in, China, in uh, Africa, you look across Europe, you look at these forests all across the world and you see that they are greening. And this is a great thing, that these forests are greening. And the cause of it, there's there's some different theories that people think the reason for these causes. One is that in the 80s, places like China and India, uh, South America, Northern America, Europe, there, there's a lot of deforestation that had already taken place and was taking place. In the 90s, we kind of woke up to that and we're like, eh, we probably should take care of the environment. Yeah, that might be a good idea. So people started planting trees. It became more eco-friendly and conscious. Because of that, we see this booming of vegetation across China, across India. Now, other countries that did not deforest or other areas in the world that didn't really go through a lot of deforestation, they didn't see a whole lot of greening as much in those areas, but it is also because they didn't have that deforestation in those areas. Another interesting fact that NASA talks about is that we are seeing on a macro scale across the earth more greening. Why? Because there is more CO2 in the earth, in the atmosphere. If you remember from science class and photosynthesis, we as humans, we breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. But plants, they breathe in carbon dioxide and they breathe out oxygen. Now, this is a great thing because they clean the air for us, right? This is why we want to preserve the rainforest. But another thing is as we have put more 
carbon dioxide into the earth, it has caused a more rich carbon dioxide environment, which has caused the greenery of the earth to grow more. NASA says that green leaves uses energy from sunlight through photosynthesis to chemically combine carbon dioxide drawn from the air with water and nutrients tapped from the ground to produce sugars, which are the main source of food, fiber, and fuel for life on Earth. Studies have shown that increased concentrations of carbon dioxide increases photosynthesis, spurring plant growth. However, carbon dioxide fertilization isn't the only cause of increased plant growth. Nitrogen, land cover change, climate change by the way of global temperature, precipitation, and sunlight changes all contribute to the greening effect. To determine the extent of carbon dioxide's contribution, researchers ran the data from carbon dioxide from each of the other variables in isolation through several computer models that mimic the plant growth observed in the satellite data. The results showed that carbon dioxide fertilization explains 70% of the greening effect, said the co-author Maga Rayani, a professor in the Department of the Earth and Environment at Boston University. The second most important driver is nitrogen at 9%. This is huge. So what we are seeing is that we live in a highly complex system. A highly complex system was when there is more carbon dioxide that is put into that system, the earth actually grows greener. And with more vegetation, there's more food for our planet, for animals, for us, for others. The earth is actually healthier. Which brings us to our last and final thought for today, which is about clean coal. Now, you might have heard about clean coal before. You might wonder, well, what what is clean coal? I look at coal and it looks black and dirty and dusty. There's nothing clean about coal. But we have developed technology, which is called clean coal, where our machinery is able to take coal, scrub off impurities, and take those impurities and put them back into the earth where they originally came from. And so when you are burning coal in clean coal facilities, all that is coming out of those smokestacks is carbon dioxide and water vapor. And as we've talked about, carbon dioxide is helping green the planet. Now, the the, the issue is that coal is not going anywhere. A lot of people think coal is bad, bad, bad. But guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Coal is not going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Why? Because it is the cheapest, most reliable fuel that we have that is fueling cities all across the world. And it's enabling humanity to come and pull themselves out of poverty. And this is the big thing. I am, I am pro-human. I'm, I'm pro that as human, we need to take care of the environment. But first and foremost, I want to see humans lifted out of poverty all across the globe. When you look at global electricity output, gigawatts per hour across the globe, we see that it's coal and peat that's producing 10 million gigawatts per hour The next competitor is gas, which is right around 
five and a half million gigawatts per hour. Underneath that, we have hydro at about four, and then we have nuclear right there around three, and then low, 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 we start to see some solar energy come in at less than one gigawatt per hour, some tidal wave and ocean energies coming in at, you know, 0.25 gigawatts per hour, thermal, geothermal energy is coming in very low. Wind is coming in at less than one gigawatt, one million gigawatts per hour. So we, we look at that, at the numbers that we have in 2020, and we see that coal is fueling the world. That is the reality. So if coal is fueling the world, it makes sense if we care about our environment to actually invest into the clean coal technology that we have. Because 10 million gigawatts per hour is a lot of power. And it's going to be better to take that $10,000 that's only going to save 10 or maybe 20 tons of carbon over the lifetime of the car and invest it into clean coal. Now, just how does clean coal work? That's, that's what I've always wondered. How does clean coal work? What is clean coal? Coal. A coal burning, clean coal burning power plant works like this. We begin with coal burning in ambient air and boils water and produces particles like soot or ash and exhaust gases like carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide. It then goes into a steam turbine generator. The boiling water generates steam, which spins a turbine to generate electricity. Step three. Solids removed. Vacuums or electrostatic charged plates are used to remove the particles. So the particles from the coal, it's not going up the smokestack. There's actually vacuums and electrostatic charged plates that remove these particles. Desulfurization. Sulfur dioxide is removed by mixing the exhaust with lime slurry, ultimately producing gypsum, which can be disposed of or resold to make wallboard. So now we're taking the sulfur dioxide and we're repurposing it to make drywall. Step five, the cooler. The still hot desulfurized exhaust is cooled to temperatures at which it is best combined with amine-based scrubbing solution like monoethanolium. Step six, absorber. The gas mixture combines with the amium solution. The carbon dioxide, a weak acid, latches onto the amium, a weak base, yielding a CO2-rich solution. Meanwhile, the remaining gas is stripped of almost all of its carbon dioxide exits into the atmosphere. What that means is that they are extracting the carbon dioxide from the air and creating a a different solution so that when the gases are released up that smokestack, there is very little carbon dioxide actually being released into the atmosphere. Step seven, stripper. Heat or pressure reverses the reaction that combines the carbon dioxide and amium, resulting in a stream of nearly pure carbon dioxide, which is captured for sale or storage. Almost all of the remaining solution, which includes regenerated amiums, can be recycled back into the resort absorber. 
This is amazing. So we're burning this coal. We're, we're capturing the sulfates and we're making drywall. We're capturing the carbon dioxide and we're actually able to then store and sell the carbon dioxide. And what's coming out the smokestacks is mostly water vapor. It's incredible, but people don't know this. People would rather have the narrative that coal burning plants are bad. Now, there are not a lot of clean coal burning plants across the world, partly because people want to invest in giving subsidies to electric cars rather than putting subsidies into an ugly looking coal burning plant because who cares? I mean, even right now, it's like, I don't care how a coal, clean coal burning plant works. I don't either, but I think it's worth knowing so that we can have an understanding what we're even talking about when we're talking about a clean coal burning power plant so that we can know, actually, this is the process. This technology is actually out there functioning in the world today. Why don't we use this? Step eight, the CO2 compression. High pressure is used to compress the captured carbon dioxide into a semi-liquid state, which allows it to be transported for easily in pipelines. Step nine, injection. The CO2 is injected several thousand feet below the Earth's surface into appropriate geological formations like salt beds, exhausted oil reserves, unminable coal seams. Step 10, storage. Perhaps the greatest concern with carbon capture and storage is ensuring that the CO2 doesn't escape. The best strategy is to inject it into porous rock layers such as sandstone. The gas expands into the pores and slowly combines with the stone to form stable minerals to prevent gas from percolating back up to the surface. Ideal storage sites have layers of impermeable rock immediately above. This technology is out there. We are able to do this. We are doing this right now. But instead, we are focused on energy sources like windmills, which don't produce much energy, which cost nine barrels of oil to produce and run. And the, the lifetime of these windmills is very short, about 25 years. Then they end up in landfills and to create the metals and to create these windmills, it actually has an incredibly high carbon footprint when you look at the mining and you look at the, the formation, the manufacturing of these windmills. It's not feasible. Solar panels, the technology is not there yet. And when a solar panel is finished its use, it can't go back into a landfill. Right now, solar panels are about only 15% effective. We're only able to capture 15% of the energy. Instead of investing $10,000 so that you or I can buy a new electric car, if we care about the environment, we should invest that money into developing better solar panels. We should put that money into developing clean coal burning power plants. This is the way of the future. This is the way that we can economically look and say, actually, if we put our money here, we will have this better result. Don't go away. We have one more segment of the show left, a Weaver and Loon segment. You do not want to miss this quote.
Welcome to the Weaver and Loom segment of the show where we take ancient wisdom and combine it with our modern day life so that we can be connected back to our purpose, back to our work, and so that you and I can weave our destinies. Today's quote comes from Sun Tzu, The Art of War. I love The Art of War. Such a great book. The quote is this, so in war, the way is to avoid what is strong and strike at what is weak. Sun Tzu, The Art of War. The reason that I chose this quote today is because I've been thinking about how many times we choose what looks best from a PR standpoint, such as we're going to stop controlled burns. We're not going to update old power lines. We are going to create incentives for people to buy electric cars. We are going to ban the sale of gasoline cars. We're, we're, we're striking at what is hard, what is strong, things that aren't actually going to move the needle in the war, as they would say, in the battle of climate change. Instead, when we look at climate change, we should strike at what is weak. When we look at the environment, we should say, well, what, what's the weak, easy points, the easy things that we can do that are going to have the most leverage and impact for the environment? And those would be controlled burns. Those would be maintaining our power lines. Those would be creating clean coal burning fuel plants which we have all that technology for, but instead we don't like it because it doesn't look good. It doesn't make us look good. It doesn't sound great on the news. It doesn't sound great on the news when, you know, President so-and-so says that he's going to create more coal plants, right? That's, that's not the sexy thing to say. The sexy thing to say is we're banning all fuel-burning cars. But it's Striking at what is strong rather than striking at what is weak. And so my encouragement to you and my encouragement to myself today is stopping to think about, about the metrics in our life, about the math in our life, about where we're putting our energy to. And I know for myself, I sometimes I'm, there's areas in my life that I'm putting energy towards something that is a stronghold rather than finding a win that will actually win the battle by striking at something that is weak but isn't as attractive. It doesn't sound as cool. It doesn't look as sexy. So that is the advice for you today. Thank you so much for being with me today here on the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions about this episode or any other episode, you can WhatsApp me at plus one. 202-922-0220. I would love to get your questions and I always answer them. Also, another way to support us here at the show is to share the podcast. If you are a listener of this podcast, a subscriber, if you listen, if you love it, it would help us so much if you shared it with your friends and family. Our team is growing here. We're trying to bootstrap a team together to really grow this thing into something bigger than it is currently. And we can only do that with your help and with your support. So thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting the show. And we will see you next time. Remember, you are a truth seeker who 
asks the hard questions and maybe chooses the thing that doesn't look so flashy, but you know will make the most impact. So go out this week and own the future.